Hey chatters, welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I hope you like hats because our guest this week has certainly worn many of them. David Yermak is the Albert Fingerhut Professor of Finance and Business Transition here at Stern, but unofficially you may as well call him the most interesting man at this business school. From investigative journalist to finance department chair and corporate spy, it seems Professor Yermak's talents know no bounds. David holds five Harvard degrees and spent time at the Wall Street Journal and Bain & Company before making his way to NYU Stern in 1994. With dozens of published academic papers, countless media citations, and editorship at six academic journals, David has encountered a plethora of unbelievable characters, situations, and circumstances. But we'll let him tell you more about that. It seems like we're in for quite the episode, Devna. But before we get started, let's check in with Eric Warders, who is actually producing today's episode. How's it going, Eric? Going well. Thanks, Devna. Andrew, I'm happy to be back. So thank you for putting this uh, episode together. Can you tell us a little bit more about Professor Yermak and why you thought he'd be a great person to interview on Stern Chats? Yeah, of course. I actually had a great time putting this episode together. Uh, Professor Yermak's story really is an incredible one with all his adventures, if we can call him that. They're a product of how incredibly bright and creative he is. Uh, his years as editor of the Harvard Crimson fashioned this really inquisitive nature, and the company that he's kept along the way has sharpened his wit to a point that he just thinks in such a pioneering and original way. Um, this is all evidence, of course, by his original and highly cited research and his standing as one of the preeminent figures in the world of cryptocurrency. So um, I'm really excited for this episode. We feel the same way, Eric. Last time you were here, you told us about how Stern has been keeping you really busy. What's been going on lately? Not much has changed, honestly. Um, overloading on classes this semester because I want to kind of make way for my exchange with London Business School next semester. And uh, in the meantime, we're also developing a new um, segment here at Stern Chats called Office Hours, which is a shorter form uh, segment to uh, be more digestible and kind of give us a look at each of the professors. So staying busy. Awesome. We can't wait for that. And we will certainly miss you when you're away at London. But Andrew, should we get started with today's show? Flip the switch and let's go. Let's cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Devna Shukla. And I'm Andrew Slotnick. We're really excited to have Professor David Yermak here today. He is the Albert Fingerhut Professor of Finance and Business Transformation here at Stern. Professor, welcome. Thank you. So one thing we like to do with all of our guests is to give a 20-second pitch before we dive into the interview. So what's your 20-second elevator pitch to introduce yourself? I've taught at Stern for 25 years, and for most of that time was in the financial mainstream, starting executive compensation, corporate governance courses, and so forth. I moved into cryptocurrency about four years ago, and this has been a career changer. So we now have a whole program in fintech, and this is um, anchored by my course in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. It's growing very fast, very popular with outside audiences. Extremely popular. I am a, uh, a subscriber to those classes. I had Professor Yermak last semester, really enjoyed it. But before we go into more about your career at Stern and your interest in cryptocurrencies, we just wanted to maybe get a little bit of insight into you and your early life. One thing that's really interesting is you don't have one, not two, not three, not four, but five degrees from Harvard. 
what prompted that? What what are they in? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this was all part of a plan, but a plan that was crazy enough that you wouldn't have disclosed it to anybody, especially not the admissions officers of these schools. <laughs> so so um, that was your th- that was your process all yeah. along. Um, I had wanted from age 16 to be a professor of economics or finance, not totally sure which field. And I began as an undergrad as an econ major and dabbled. I registered in some PhD courses and tried to learn about what it would look like to continue straight from bachelor's to a PhD program. And I was deeply dissatisfied. I thought it was highly mathematical, had no connection to the real world, and that the professional schools in law and business would probably be basically better preparation for a career as an academic. This is quite unusual that many professors, in fact, it's mandatory that you have a PhD, relatively few would have actually gotten an MBA. I also even worked for two years at Bain and Company, which is quite unusual that very few professors have ever had jobs outside the academy. So I needed the PhD at the end of it really as a credential. It's a barrier to entry. But I learned much more in the other schools, and in particular in law school, that Today, when I look for research ideas and think critically about how to analyze a problem, I draw on the, the law education more than anything else. I mean, so, how proud are your parents? Just to give a rundown to our listeners, you have a bachelor's in economics from Harvard, an MBA from Harvard, a JD law degree from Harvard, an MA in business econ, again from Harvard, and a PhD in business economics. Your family must be so proud of you. I guess you can ask mom and dad, but it, you might have guessed mom is a lawyer and dad is an MBA. And, um, so this enabled me to split the difference between them. And I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. I was born in Princeton. Um, they were not professors, but I was around academics from childhood. Sure. And I think this really f- figured very much in my career choice. I feel as though I've read so many articles about northern New Jersey, the people who come from northern New Jersey being very well educated – you are an impressive data point. Yeah, in, I was in fortunate <laughs> in, in the family I was born into and where we were living. My my dad worked in aerospace, the the old RCA aerospace business during the really dramatic years of the Apollo missions and when it was a very well-funded industry. That's so cool. It, wow. it happened to be located there. So that's where my parents raised their family. And, you know, it would have been very different if I was born in another country, another society. But I... Um, benefited very much from growing up in the Princeton area. When you think about your time, though, within all these different schools, you know, up in Cambridge, what are your thoughts? What, what sticks out to you most about your time overall? What is clearly the most important thing about any school is the classmates. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a really interesting group of people at each of those faculties. And you knew that people all brought different talents and were extraordinarily smart, but you didn't really know who from the pack was going to break out and become famous in the mm-hmm. future. And it's been interesting to see down the road who's you know really made a mark on society. The more time you look back at you know the late night talks, the extracurriculars, the classes you took together, you learn more from the other students than you do from the professors. Mm. And really the great benefit of anyone who's 18 going after their freshman year in college is the mix they're going to enter you know, and be put into and what they're going to bring to the group and what they're going to take away from it. It's really the relationships with the classmates. And I think this continues through graduate school, even in the PhD program. You, you get a Rolodex and a list of contacts that's for life. Definitely. So your graduating class from Harvard Law School 
is is pretty prominent. Can you talk about some of your classmates that year? Yeah, I was in the class of 91, which has now become known as the greatest class in the history of Harvard Law School. Because, because David Yermak graduated. Yes, no, exactly. I was the only one in the class who became a finance professor. <laughs> among many others, we had Barack Obama and Neil Gorsuch in the class. Wow. And lots of others who have become federal judges, cabinet officials, law school deans, and so forth. Now, did your class and, stay in touch, or what is that like to oh, have even that pressure of being the greatest class of all time? That came after the fact, although we've now been told that if you look at the LSAT scores and the entering credentials, that we were actually on paper ex-ante, the, the best <laughs> class that was ever admitted. And it's gone downhill since then because the law has become a less attractive profession. So law schools are not, probably never again will attract the same quality of students as back when I went. You really wouldn't have known at the time that the class was so extraordinary Nevertheless, you knew that the people around you were really very mm -hmm. bright and interesting. They were um, – I really learned more from my classmates in law school and found them to be probably the, the brightest and most intriguing group of people than any of those other faculties where I hung out. And I'm not sure this is always true of law school, but it happened to be at that time and place. It was you know, a very, very neat group of people. Do you remember meeting President Obama for the first time or any interactions with him during law uh, school? Obama was really not very social. He mm -hmm. was known for hanging out in the gym and playing basketball. Interesting. He was well known because he, as everybody knows, was the head of the law review. He mm -hmm. was the number one student in the class, basically, and had a reputation of being extraordinarily smart. Mm. But very few people actually knew him personally. He had a small circle of friends. Um, Gorsuch I knew quite well. He was in my section, very friendly guy. The extremely right-wing politics did not come through unless you knew that Gorsuch's mother was the old EPA administrator who was right. even a bigger polluter than Scott Pruitt. <laughs> that, you know, she got even run out by the Republican Congress, which takes something if you're an environmental official. But um, Neil on the bench is rather different than Neil in person. He was a very friendly guy. That's awesome. Funny story about Scott Pruitt. He lives in my brother's old apartment. You are always it, I have these random stories Is to this add. that VIP secret apartment? Yeah, yeah, right. So, no, my brother lived in um, Washington, D.C., off of 14th Street. One day, they're moving out. Him and his girlfriend get a knock on the door. A couple of, I guess, department of of um, not labor. I don't know what the EPA rolls up into one of the bureaucratic it, departments. It's, it might be its own. It's independent agency. It, it's yeah. own. But apparently they have police officers like Capitol Police and Department of Treasury Police, etc. And they sweep the apartment and he comes in because he's going to rent it after them. And my brother's like, what is this? So that that might be the apartment, even though, I mean, my brother was fresh out of college. I don't think he had two nickels to rub together at that point. But it was, it was pretty funny. Well, Pruitt didn't pay any rent either. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We need like a web of like all the different connections that you have to our Stern Chats guests and stories and, you know, there's always a story of, of, of who all, Andrew Always met. a story. Always, always a, a story. story for sure. I mean, even during your time, though, with having all these degrees, what did you do for fun or to relieve stress or what are some of your like personal hobbies that sort of sustain you during all this really hard work? You know, what I spent most time on college was actually working on the newspaper. I was mm -hmm. part of the editorial board of the Harvard Crimson. And that was arguably even more work than my classes. Mm. Um, I'm also a big sports fan, and Boston is a huge sports town. I'm a Yankees fan, and there's no better place to be a Yankees <laughs> fan than in Boston, <laughs> especially back then when the curse of the Bambino, Bambino was alive and well. I usually would buy every Yankees ticket in December the prior year mm -hmm. and um, go to all the games. 
the sports scene in college was also a lot of fun. We had a nationally ranked hockey team and um, lots of time hanging out in the dorms, watching football, playing poker, um, enjoying the cultural life in Boston, which is considerable. Did your family have a lot of Harvard swag? One of my cousins went to Harvard, and he would literally rip off the Harvard stuff or give it to us. And I was like, well, I'll never go there, so I at least will have a sweatshirt, I guess. Uh, we have a few people. Um, my mom was a student in the 50s in graduate school at a time where relatively few women would have been admitted to the advanced programs. And so in many ways, the career I have now is one that she might have had had she been born 20 or 30 years later. Sure. Um, but she's an alum. My father went to an exec program at the business school for a semester. My wife I met while I was there. You know, between the four of us, there is, um, you know, quite a bit of memorabilia hanging around. <laughs> My daughter is now applying in the current admissions cycle. So I mean, automatic in. Why even reply? It's, it's not automatic. So. <laughs> You've got um, the, the number of Harvard legacy applicants every year is, I think, four to five times, even if that were the only people admitted. They, right. They couldn't, you know. Well, there's a major court case that's being – tried today, I believe. Yeah, it's a very interesting case where the um, right wing has flipped around the arguments that Harvard has given preferential admission to people of basically black and Latino backgrounds, but it's a zero-sum game, and they have figured out that this crowds out the Asian population, and so they've now used exactly the same arguments but flipped the facts around to argue that Asians are being discriminated against. And it's you know, one of a number of cases where you have to admire the legal ingenuity of the conservatives who've, you know, been able time and again to use access to the courts to re-engineer social issues to their own advantage. And I think that um, it's going to be interesting to see how this comes out. It will, I think, almost inevitably land before the Supreme Court, which, as we know, is drifting to the right. Um, you wonder about the justices having to recuse themselves from a case like this because that's interesting. Your I, buddy. Well, it's not just my buddy. That I think at the moment six of the nine justices are from Harvard. They, wow. They asked John Roberts like, "Why isn't it more diverse?" And he said, "Well, we have two from Yale." But, <laughs> Spoken and, like a true Ivy Leaguer. Now they have a third. Right. Yeah. And so those three Yale people may hear the case. But frankly, this is meant to set a precedent for all universities. And I think it will have far-reaching consequences. My mother was in law school when they argued the Bakke case back in the 1970s, which was really the first case in this area that moved through the federal courts. And even though the conservatives have lost all these cases, they have never given up. They're extremely tenacious and patient. And the legal strategy here is, is really quite interesting. If you can remove yourself from your emotional connection to the issues, this will be a very good law school lecture, I think. Absolutely. So I read about this article in the Wall Street Journal. You used to work for the Wall Street Journal, I believe, trying to make a, a, a tough segue here. Um, can you maybe talk about your time at the WSJ? Was that before or after Bain? Was that while you were at school? Yeah, I was a summer intern at the Wall Street Journal. When I worked for the Harvard Crimson, typically that would lead you right into journalism, that the, um, the top editors of the Crimson had many opportunities to work for the top newspapers in the country, and many of my classmates are still doing that. So I spent a summer in the Philadelphia Bureau that is no longer open. They've closed some of the bureaus over time to save money. 
Um, it's in the same building that was used as the office of Duke and Duke in Trading Places. So <laughs> people wanted to know where did you work. It's in the Duke Brothers building in Philadelphia. Buying frozen concentrated orange juice Exactly. Features. But this was a very interesting job. Journalism is built on adrenaline. There's breaking news and you are working on deadline and have to learn everything about a subject that you may have never heard anything about you know, in your whole life. And then write a succinct story that gets the issue in front of the paper's readers. I, I always found that fun and exciting. And um, it would have been nice to make a career in journalism, except that the economics have changed. I think everyone knows that all the newspapers have pretty much gone bankrupt. And the news industry, there's more news than ever, but it's typically in focused blogs like Nate Silver's mm -hmm. 538, um, you know, that you now have people who are specialists and for the audience, it's a do-it-yourself where you can harvest the news from all kinds of outlets like mm -hmm. this podcast, for instance. And it's a totally different business model where the career that you might have spent as a reporter and editor at the same newspaper just doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's no longer a prestigious upper-middle-class job to write for the Washington Post. In fact, it's very risky to do that. What do you typically read every day, given your passion for journalism and you know your experience in it as well? I read uh, the New York Times and Politico and Coindesk, hmm. Coindesk being the um, leading news service for crypto. And then if time permits, I may follow up. I've got um, Financial Times, I think, is the um, best newspaper in the world, but they don't cover the issues that are close to me. They, they tend to write more about European politics and mm -hmm. so forth. And if time permits, I might read that as well. Um, it's wicked expensive. We the, get, fi the Financial Times. We get it free. Oh, if, I will if, be following up with you after this <laughs> podcast. There's a faculty benefit, or, or maybe they charge our research account some nominal sum, but this came in a couple years ago. And I also read a lot of stuff connected to work, you know, that professors do a huge amount of peer review to decide what papers will be published or mm -hmm. put into, in, into conferences and so forth. So much of my time is spent reading stuff. You know, really, it's closely connected to the finance profession one way or another. Sure, a lot to definitely cover. So then after your time at the Wall Street Journal, you went over to Bain, which is really interesting because at Stern and at other business schools, there's sort of two schools of thought. One is your finance-focused or one is your consulting-focused, and the rest of us, like people like me, are sort of adrift in the ocean by yourself. Um, so I'm curious about that transition from, you know, going into Bain and sort of what you were doing there. You know, I was partly marking time. I had wanted to continue in school, mm -hmm. and I had applied to both law school and business school and see which one will take me. And um, I was a little bit surprised I was admitted to both. And I realized I didn't have the financial resources to go to four years of graduate school. I needed a job. And I also wanted to stay in Boston, and so I looked around and asked and did a little research, what's the coolest firm to work for in Boston? And in those days, and maybe this is still true, it was Bain. It's, Bain. it's still a pretty cool place to work. Yeah, yeah it was known back then as the KGB of consulting. There was um, <laughs> a lot of intrigue and secrecy surrounding the firm. And it was a much smaller firm than it is today. There was just um, the Boston and San Francisco offices were the only two in North America. And I think there were maybe three overseas. And um, the firm today has dozens of offices and looks much more traditional in its footprint but it was still at that point only about 12 years old. And you know, Mr. Bain was still at his desk and Mitt was walking around. He had just started the venture capital unit. Um, 
you know, it was the the firm has come a great distance since then, but it was fun back then when it was still I wouldn't call it small, but it was still young and I think they had about 700 people working there. So when you're helping all these companies out with the toughest management questions they have, financial diligence, etc., what led to a transition into academia whereby you wanted to do a bit more research, um, be associated with an institution? This is what I had always wanted to do. I never lost interest for, in the career from the age of 16. When I was a um, high school junior, I took economics at the high school level and was completely hooked by the topic. But I felt that to do it well in the university, I really should go to law school, business school, and work for a couple of years. And I would say that the two years I worked at Bain were by far the best education of anything. You know, you get so much knowledge about how this stuff is actually applied in the real world and the disconnect between what professors talk about and what people actually do. It's really very valuable to have that perspective. So I, I came back and went through the four-year JD MBA program, and they had a scholarship for MBA students who might wish to continue for a doctoral degree. And this essentially provided a backdoor into the PhD program if you could win this scholarship. I would never have gotten through the main applicant pool into anyone's PhD program simply because it's so competitive and you need much more math than I had really had up to that point or probably was capable of learning. So I, I identified this scholarship. I did win it, and um, it was a pure loophole. I never would have become a professor and gotten into a PhD program without this conduit of a, um, a special scholarship for Harvard MBA students to continue for a PhD, which in most years nobody even applied for because the external options were so lucrative. Is there a certain experience you'd think back to during your time at Bain that really sort of still you know, creates a lot of um, rewards and insights to this day? We did a lot of corporate spying. And um, mm. I was identified KGB. as somebody who would be good at this. Yeah. So we, the more polite word for this would be competitor research. But we would stake out the plants of competitors, get the license plate numbers of the staff, and then create phone surveys and call them up at night and ask them about their employer. Um, I once needed a phone list, and I was on crutches from a basketball accident. Mm. And so I just walked in the door and asked if I could use the phone. And they said, sure. And the phone list was sitting there, and I memorized the top 10 names. Um, we went to London to meet with brokers who were covering a stock. And um, you, you never tell lies in these situations, mm -hmm. but you um, – Rather than asking questions, you're really looking to dump information into the notebooks of the brokers, but do it in a very subtle way. Um, it sort of sounds like investigative journalism in a different yeah. way. No, it drew on many of the skills that I'd learned in journalism. And I had really good bosses. Um, the, the two people who were the leaders of my case team were Andrew Banks and Royce Yudkoff, who later started a very successful communications firm called ABRY Communications. It's, I think, based out of Bermuda for tax reasons. Mm. But these guys have done extraordinarily well. Um, Andrew Banks, my immediate boss, was a Rhodes Scholar. He had been an original member of the Eagles. Um, he played college football. He, was, he could do everything mm -hmm. and was an extremely impressive person who I learned a great deal from. So I, um, I had a lot of colleagues at Bain who were very bright, resourceful people. It's not unlike going to an excellent graduate school that mm -hmm. you learn from the people you work with every day, whether it's as fellow students or coworkers. And um, um, 
I, I, I remember the time as just a great learning experience. Um, one, one memory that stayed with me is rotisserie baseball. This was when fantasy sports was in its very beginning. And rotisserie was where you would draft a team typically at a restaurant. It was called rotisserie because that was the name of the restaurant where the first <laughs> draft was held. And we were doing this in 1986, which was about the second or third year of rotisserie. And I brought a laptop computer where I had a database of all the players. And I was ridiculed, like, oh, who does the computer pick? So the next year, everybody had a computer. <laughs> and you, you know, people never look back. I have a son now at Syracuse in the sports management program where you can actually major in sports analytics. You know, this it's taking the whole thing that was at the very um, – seedling sapling level in the early 80s has now become a major focus of the whole industry. I do want to highlight something that you've said a few times so far. I think it's very important that many of us go to graduate schools and new experience and, and want to learn from people who are the experts in the field, who have tons and tons of experience over us. But it seems like you've always been really open to the people around you, your colleagues, your classmates, and really open just to learning from them, but also to teaching them what you know as well. Yeah, I think the real education you get is not sitting in the class. It's sitting, you know, in a coffee house with someone, maybe at night, maybe working in group projects. It, it really comes from the social interaction and the networks, the support system from the other students. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a very po important point of differentiation from one school to the next is the strength of the student culture. And um, it's hard to create this and hard to sustain it. But I think for people who are applying to schools, the more of this that you can get your contact with, you know, that go meet the students, mm -hmm. do, do class visits. In college, you should do the overnight in the dorm kind of thing, and especially talk to other people, friends and family who may have attended the same school about what their experience was. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, that's much more important than clicking off who's on the faculty you know, reading the course catalog and so forth. I think that's a great segue into why did you pick Stern? How did you end up here? I had specialized in corporate finance, and I came on the job market in 1994 as a new PhD. And it was a very interesting time in higher education because mandatory retirement for professors had been abolished just a year or two before. So it used to be that all professors had to retire at 65, and then this rule was basically ended by the federal government, so nobody retired, at least not at first. You know, sooner or later, everybody retires. But there was a transitional period where basically professors stopped retiring, and there were no jobs, oh, wow. hmm. like no jobs at all. So I came onto the market, and you have no real control over the market. You know, you just meet the market that's there when you graduate. But... I was basically very fortunate that Stern then is now is, you know, I think back then was a top 10, but now is solidly a top five finance department. And I had simply applied to the top dozen or so schools, hoping to stick with one of them. And in the end, it came down to either here, there were some possibilities of staying on the faculty at Harvard, although this was never really clear that it was going to happen. Or I would have ended up doing what most of my classmates from the doctoral program did, which is go to industry. You know, a lot of really good doctoral students never got the chance to be professors if they happened to graduate in the, mid, in the early to mid-90s. So I was really lucky to get placed in a top 10 department. And um, 
I had grown up not far from here and had always sworn I would never take a job in New York. <laughs> I was not happy about moving to New York. But I have to say that um, not only has the city changed profoundly, you know, the, the crime has gone compared to what it was in the 70s when I was a kid. The um, cultural level of the city, which has always been high, has reached, I think, new heights. The, the years where Giuliani was mayor was really a turning point where the city really changed just the nature of day-to-day -day life. And rather than becoming a dangerous, dirty place, it really became a very nice destination city. And um, I really, really liked the faculty in the department. You know, in the visit I had and then starting here as an assistant professor, I discovered not only are there very bright people in the finance group at Stern, but a very strong culture, you know, lots of teamwork, mentoring of young faculty. Um, it's really a place that historically young professors have been able to come and be successful at a higher rate than at any other finance group among the leading schools. So I think I was very lucky to end up here, and I didn't fully appreciate it when I first got the job. But looking backward, this is the best thing could have happened to me, that not only was it a really great opportunity, but NYU as a university is very interdisciplinary and entrepreneurial. So my colleagues encouraged me to go meet the people at the law school and to do research that went across boundaries and to try to publish in articles outside the, the finance field. And you wouldn't have gotten this advice everywhere. You know, at many universities, there's real silos and boundaries between faculties, but it's the other way around at NYU that they not only encourage, but they explicitly reward if you are teaching in another faculty or doing joint research with a colleague outside your field. So I think that this has worked very well for me because my background is diverse. Mm -hmm. And you know, they told me straight off, if you don't go over and meet those law school people, you have human capital that will just go to waste. You know, we want to get the most out of you, and so go do this. And I, among many other things, am now director of the Joint Center for Law and Business, along with a colleague from the law faculty who ironically was in graduate school with me back at Harvard. No way. Wow. Yeah, we wrote our dissertations together in the library you know, 25 years ago. So I've known Steve Choi forever, and we sat together in the dungeons of Baker Library reading microfiche. And we both ended up here, and now we're co-directors of the Center for Law and Business. Wow. I'm curious how that plays out in the classroom. When you have business students and law students on the first day of class, can you tell which student goes to which school? And they're, no. No? <laughs> Some, somebody that has a nicer, a nicer notebook or, or, I don't know, dresses nicer, the law school. Who knows no. what's going on? I started um, in my first year here, I decided to just design my own elective, which is very rare. Most professors just teach the intro course out of a textbook because they want to minimize the commitment. But mm -hmm. I, I really wanted to teach a course that was close to my research area. And I wanted to list it in both faculties. Mm. And so my restructuring MBA course that I've been teaching since my first year here has always been listed as both a law school course and a Stern course. So this is not just cross-registration, but it actually has a separate number and so forth, and it's in the catalogs of both schools. So the student mix over the years has been as close to 50-50 as it could possibly be. And it does attract joint degree students. We have JD MBAs here, and mm -hmm. I think you're obviously going to get people from the law school who are likely to be in the corporate or securities areas and so forth, and people from Stern who have an interest in regulation. You really can't tell who's who. In fact, students will ask questions during the class. I have no idea which school they're coming from. And I think that's meant to be the point of the course, that to understand this material, 
in restructuring, I, I begin on the first day and say that there's going to be business problems, and often there's either a market solution or a regulatory solution. And sometimes they're very different, sometimes they complement each other, but to fully understand this, you need to know both. And um, I try very hard to teach from a point of view that will reach both audiences. So I've done the same now with the crypto course. I started this course four years ago with a law professor who knew about Bitcoin from his background in banking law. So we got in the first year in 2014, 35 students, I think. Mm. And we both overloaded our teaching that year because we were afraid this thing might just fall apart and get canceled. You know, the Bitcoin would just disappear. Um, the course last semester had 230 people and is now offered multiple times a year. We've, as of this year, we're splitting it and teaching it both semesters. And you've got, again, almost a 50-50 mix between the law and the business. I, I'd actually have to go look at the list mm -hmm. to know who has more. But it's very interdisciplinary material. Again, there are market issues and regulatory issues, and it's hard to understand one without understanding the other. So I've been able to reach audiences of a critical mass from both schools. And I think that this is infrequent, that there are students who cross-register, but typically you might have a Stern class with 100 Stern and three law students. Mm -hmm. But we really um, get about 50 of each in a room that may hold 100, and this is... Um, it's a nice outcome, and I think it works best for everybody that way. What was the hook that got you really into doing research on cryptocurrencies, wanting to teach it? Um, obviously, that's what you're known for here at Stern now, and, and the larger academic community comes to you as an expert on that. The hook, I think, is rather surprising. I took a course in high school in protest literature. Okay. And this began with Allen Ginsberg's Hal, and I think we read you know, T.S. Eliot and then up through the 60s and so forth. And one of the books was by Thomas Pynchon called The Crying of Lot 49. And it's about a secret underground post office that started as an act of political rebellion. And this whole network spreads through the country with mailboxes and secret signs and stuff. And I started reading in the media about Bitcoin, this secret peer-to-peer -peer financial system. And I looked at it. I thought, this is crying of Lot 49 all over again, but it's not a post office. It's a bank. But it's the same idea, the same libertarian you know, political pushback against the tyranny of the system. So I was amused by it. And I thought it was remarkable that the thing even worked at all. And it began to grow. you know. And I was watching this probably more than my colleagues, but the price passed 100, and that was a news story. And then in the fall of 2013, it really began to take off. It would ultimately get up to 1,000 that fall in a very short period of time. And you began to see regulatory interest by the government. There began to be concern about money laundering. And one day, there was two days of hearings in the US Senate where Bernanke testified that he thought that this was interesting and had a role to play in the future. And I thought this was the wackiest thing. Why would the chairman of the Fed be endorsing you know, this cryptocurrency? And then I realized that it was really the technology, the blockchain behind it gives the central bank a universal list of everyone who might be avoiding taxes or laundering money that in, rather than being an act of political rebellion, this is the fantasy of the central bank is to have this master ledger of everyone's spending. So at that point, I thought there may be some academic work to be done here. 
I was um, scheduled to keynote a conference on just mainstream financial topics in Puerto Rico. And I put my remarks on the ice and I said, let's just talk about Bitcoin. This was a very spontaneous decision in November of 2013. But um, I never looked back. You know, within six months, I was in Basel in this off-the-record meeting with the central bankers. And this was really very cool. And the thing that impressed me about this was how scared they were of the whole thing. You know, great concern with Janet Yellen, Mario Draghi, and so forth about um, how this would cause problems and how, you know, in the end, it was really designed to undermine the control of central banks and that they, they knew much more about it than you might have guessed. They'd been watching this very carefully. And I knew by then that we needed to be offering a course on this. Were, there, were their fears legitimate or were they just because they didn't understand certain nuances? I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Hmm. I think, um, you know, this thing is celebrating its 10th anniversary this fall. The original Bitcoin white paper came out in October of 2008. It was read by a very small number of people and it spread purely through word of mouth. But I think it's remarkable how big the sector has been and how it's spilled at this point, out of finance and into areas like food safety, mm -hmm. uh, luxury good authentication, you know, just all kinds of applications of the blockchain. But I think it's here to stay, and it's already changed the financial system irreversibly. Now, whether it's going to threaten the autonomy of governments or whether governments instead will co-opt the technology to make themselves even more powerful, this is playing out right now. Mm -hmm. um, you can look at a country like Venezuela, where the financial system has completely collapsed, but there's a very vibrant crypto economy in its place. And you can look at China, where the central bank is actually developing a blockchain that may go live as the national currency system as soon as next year. And this is meant to tighten what is already very high level of social control. And I think um, what China is reacting to is the success of Ant Financial and WeChat, that much of the retail payment system in China has actually migrated to digital technology outside the normal financial system. And they hate that. They hate the loss of control, and so they're fighting back. Mm -hmm. When I went to China uh, this past spring, the person I was traveling with was like, you have to download the Weixi WeChat yeah. because that's the only way to make payments. Everybody down to the smallest street vendor will accept WeChat payments but not a credit card. This yeah. is a must. This is remarkable how much, you know, just day-to-day -day financial practice has changed. I had this experience in Sweden where cash has just disappeared. Even the banks in Sweden don't take cash. They'll wave That's it off. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, they say, we don't take that here. But why is it? What is it about cash inherently, someone who knows nothing about crypto and currencies and all that, that makes it so that, you know, even the smallest vendors across the world, you know, will take these um, digital payments? Cash is cumbersome and inconvenient. You know, you have to go to the ATM to get it. Mm -hmm. You have to protect it and store it on your body. Um, it's never been good for large transactions. You know, I think that anybody who seriously looks at their spending in the course of a year will realize that since the 1960s, there's been a long progression toward a cashless economy. And any purchase, you know, of a restaurant meal and certainly a a car or expensive clothing is almost certainly going to be done already electronically. Mm -hmm. What's been changing in the last few years is the movement of very small payments. Um, what we call micropayments are now becoming almost entirely cashless, at least in some countries. 
um, I've resolved back here in the U.S. to not use cash anymore. Mm -hmm. And I haven't spent any cash in two or three weeks except to tip the people in garages where I park my car. Mm -hmm. And then I had to ask my wife, could I have a few bucks? Because <laughs> she still uses cash. I told her I quit cash. You know, I'm done with it. And it's, it's much more convenient. The um, societies that have done this have done it really spontaneously. It, it bubbles up from the bottom. And Frankly, they're concerned about this in Sweden because the central bank is worried about an electrical failure. Like, what if, what if the Russians take down the electrical grid? How will we transact? And they want to bury stores of cash in the countryside, you know, for national security reasons. Do you think that's a function of Sweden having their own currency, it being fairly uh, confined to their country, versus something as large as the euro, the pound, or the dollar? I don't, actually. And I know this from traveling and teaching in Europe during the summers because um, I do spend a lot of time abroad and I can compare, for instance, the Netherlands and Germany. So these are two countries that are not only neighbors but have pretty similar economies and similar – well, the same macroeconomics really because they're part of the EU. The um, Netherlands has gone almost completely cashless. Germany, they still use cash for everything. So there's got to be a big cultural component to this. And, um, I was going to say we need to tell the, the local restaurant across the street that has the $10 minimum for swiping your credit card. That, and that's becoming that very legal? passe. Yeah. It is legal, yes. So in the card agreement, they're allowed to do that. that was, this, is, this is getting really technical, but this is something <laughs> that I've always brought up and tried to fight the restaurant over saying if you accept this credit card, don't you have to accept payments of any size? I don't know. I don't know about the contract with the credit card provider, but certainly under the civil and criminal law, a merchant can set conditions for accepting different means of payment. And um, I know that credit cards have issues with offering discounts, and I don't know about the minimum transaction size, but that would be really a matter of private contract. And I think you as a third-party customer couldn't avail yourself of any relief there. It's really up to the credit card company to step in and yeah. It's just so interesting. To, to your point, I also operate my life in a very cashless way, but you never need cash until then you need it. And then you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> what's happening here? Like, you literally don't take anything. Like, I literally I'll, I literally one time was like, I'll Venmo you. Like, yeah. you know, you. it's such an interesting way to transact. It's very much a generational thing, too, that when I look at how my kids lead their life, mm -hmm. um, they're uninterested in cash. Mm -hmm. And they do everything electronically. And that's because they grew up with mobile phones. And mm -hmm. they're just very comfortable and trusting of the technology, maybe even a little naive about it. But I think that the world will get there, you know, probably within the next generation. What's surprising about Sweden is it's this country that actually skews older. And it's also a fairly conservative society. But I know if you tried to do it in this country, you know, if I told my parents that starting tomorrow, your mobile phone is your cash, this would not, <laughs> you know, that, the, the older people in society tend to have most of the money, too. So, you know, even if most of the young people want to use these apps, the, the wealth is held by the older generations. Mm -hmm. And I think in the U.S. especially, it's going to take some time because um, we are a fairly um, cautious society about adopting information technology relative to other countries, especially the Asian ones where mm -hmm. the um, – velocity of this stuff is much higher than probably any other place in the world. Totally. And to your point that there are so many cultures where it's so significant or meaningful or really a sign of love to give cash, whether it's a cash for a gift or in an envelope, um, yeah. even my own family, I don't know when it'll ever stop. But, you know, my 
father's father used to give him cash just to like as whenever he came home and my parents still like always make sure I I leave you know the DC area with something just Hanukkah as a sign. Gelt. Yes. In yeah. my household. No. I've tried to tell my dad about Venmo. I'm not sure that's the best strategy, but, you know, it's, was, it's a thought that counts. I was talking to one of our Bitcoin guest speakers who gives wedding gifts in the form of what are called paper wallets, which is <laughs> he, he just prints out the hash code to a wallet with Bitcoin and just hands an envelope to the bride and groom. I don't think they have any idea what they're getting when they see this code. But um, if they do a little bit of research, they realize it, it could be something quite valuable. But I think... Um, Again, the, the kids today look at this very differently. And my parents' generation had savings bonds and mm-hmm. war bonds, you know, and that kind of went by the boards by the 1970s. But the way that your parents th- think about financial transactions and deal with money is probably going to be completely different than you, and then your kids will take a lot of this still further. It's, it's a time of great change. And I think this is um, really not due to anything other than the acceleration of IT, you know, mm-hmm. the, the breakthroughs that are being made in machine learning, artificial intelligence, it's, it's happening at a faster rate today simply because of the concentration of so many great minds in this area and firms like Google and Amazon that are, you know, completely rewriting the rules of commerce and so forth. And now your daughter's mining cryptocurrency at home. Yeah, my daughter who... <laughs> Last winter, he, he told us the story in class. <laughs> no, in fact, I found that I had of my four kids, two of them owned crypto, and this was without any encouragement oh from boy. me. Oh, wow. In fact, I'm pretty consistent in looking at the prices of this stuff as I treat it with great caution. You know, I wouldn't, above all, tell my kids to put their money in crypto. But um, my son was in college, just the kids were speculating in it for fun. And my daughter, who was 13, was actually mining Bitcoin. And um, she's a very bright kid and kind of sciencey. You know, this is the kind of thing that she would do. But it was done without any encouragement from me. And um, I asked her, of course, who is paying your electrical bill? There you go. Oh, my goodness. And she said, I did this at Christmas when we were visiting Uncle Mark's house. Oh, sure. "This, This is perfectly fine. If he pays the bill, and she made, I think, 58 cents, she told me, which was her share of, you know, she's a tiny member of a very big mining pool worldwide, but adding her hash rate into the... I think this is great to, um, you know, it's, it's a technology It's accessible by absolutely anyone with a computer, but kids today and the way that they get drawn in by social media and, you know, even as small children by video game apps, um, you worry about this as a parent until you realize that these are value-added skills. You know, it turns out that the time my kids spent playing video games, my son is now studying sports management at Syracuse, and he tells me it's all e-sports. And so, you know, he was not wasting his time doing the FIFA online stuff. That's crazy. Yeah. No, and you you don't appreciate this as parents, but, um, you know, my kids spontaneously are drawn to this crypto really because of the way that technology enters their life at a very young age. And um, I'm a proud parent. I I learn it. I always go talk to my kids about, like, what's the latest app or how do you use Venmo or what can you harvest? And um, they know a lot about this just from, you know, ordinary day-to-day socializing. And I, um, I don't hesitate at all to go to them for advice about some of this stuff when I need it. See, that's really cool. Again, I was just about to ask about what dinner time was like at your home, but the fact that you're so open to your teenage kids to give you what's really going on sort of socially and culturally, I think is really interesting. And it, It's interesting to have four kids. Our youngest is 12, and there will be a brief period of time when he turns 13 in a few months that we will have four teenagers simultaneously. Wow. 
I would not wish this on anybody. (laughs) You know, they are learning to push back and feel their limits and challenge authority. It's it's very interesting. The most challenging thing I've done is be a parent of a teenager and to do it four in parallel. Um, That's tough. But then the older one will turn 20 and we'll begin to offboard them into adulthood. Do you travel a lot speaking at universities? What's What's that balance like? This is true of most of the faculty here, certainly in finance, that um, it's important to travel and meet people at other schools. What you really want to do is be invited to give research papers either at conferences or seminars. And so I will probably do this 25 to 30 times a year. Um, you know, Just as an example, I was at the University of Chicago this past week, I think two weeks before I was at Michigan State. Um, and, I mean, there's a long list by the end of the year. You just go to a lot of places, both in the U.S. and abroad. Um, I got really good advice as a doctoral student. One of my professors, in fact, it's the famous Michael Jensen, said that you have to think of yourself as an entrepreneur, that you not only have to have good ideas, but you have to build a market for them. You have to find your audience. And every time I get an invitation, I think it's one more chance to build the brand, you know, to, to attract the scholars who, in the end, will do the peer review of my own work. You, you want to get it in front of them and convince them that you're smart. So um, you have a lot of opportunities for travel, and I think it's, it's actually very important to take advantage of them just to circulate and get the word out, to fly the flag of the school. And I've told my wife many times that when these invitations stop coming, is where the real problems begin. Yeah, where you become irrelevant or over the hill and they no longer want to hear from you. That's really when you need to start thinking about retiring. But fortunately, this has not yet happened for me. So, but there is no David Yermak brand in China. I I remember hearing this story. I think the brand is actually rather strong because they keep inviting me, but I'm not going. And the reason is I was scheduled to keynote a conference in Shanghai last November and about 10 days before, they told me I would have to change my topic for political reasons, that mm. what I was going to talk about, which was initial coin offerings, was as of now forbidden to even discuss. And I asked, you know, why can't we just talk about why it's forbidden? You know, that, <laughs> right, exactly. It, you know, Most I understand you know, that it's been regulated and outlawed, and we could talk about why. You know, what problem is the government trying to solve? But they said, no, no, you can't even mention it. You know, the, the way they regulate something is that no one – you know, you all pretend it doesn't exist. So I told them that I couldn't come under those circumstances. You know, very important principle of academic freedom that you can't tell professors what they're allowed to say at a research conference or it becomes a sham. But I think there's a greater problem with China, which is that they invite Western academics to give the veneer of political debate, and it, they're really not serious about it. When they want to know what you really think about something, they'll send a delegation to New York. Interesting. And I told them I'm not coming back until there's political change. And I also told them I'm not going to talk to Chinese audiences outside of China either. Oh, wow. That you can't pick and choose when you want to hear the truth versus when you want to have me come and perform your script. And that's not the business we're in. So I've, you know, I'm boycotting China now. And I want to be as public about this as possible. I think that this is, you know, really a values-based decision and that any academic who engages with the Chinese has to consider what they're giving up and what restrictions they're willing to tolerate. But it's it's fundamentally against the idea of academic freedom. I also see the connection to your background in journalism, too, about facts and the truth and presenting, you know, 
different sides of the story and sort of having these values that have like, you know, sort of um, propelled you throughout your life as well. One of the things I've learned from journalism is that there is no single version of the truth. Definitely. And I met a professor who took a great interest in some of the articles I wrote, and we ended up, when I was a junior in college, having long discussions about the role of the media. And I was, I think, very naive until I met this guy who was actually a math professor. And um, he said every newspaper has an agenda that you look at the New York Times and which photographs they put on the front page. You know, this is not random. This is based on a point of view that they want to sell to a readership. And it really opened my eyes. And what you see, of course, is the Fox News spin, the, the New York Times spin, which are about 180 degrees opposed to them. But there's a whole mix of opinions out there. And I think what makes for a healthy society is to let everyone get their voice in there. Um, rather than regulate this, and, and I don't think newspapers should pretend to be balanced. There's often a pretense that they are objective. There's no such thing as objectivity in the media. That everybody has an agenda, and I think the sooner you admit this to yourself and are mm -hmm. upfront about it, the, the better it is for everybody. I think what's dangerous is that people can pick and choose who they listen to. Mm -hmm. That in the old days, there was a fairly vanilla nightly news on the three networks, and it pushed you toward the center politically, and I think it probably contributed to some of the stability of our society that has disappeared. Um, today, if you're conservative, you can listen only to Fox News and Breitbart and you know all those other things that I would never read. Um, I read the leftist media because that's all I have time for, of mm -hmm. course. But it leads to um, people reinforcing their own beliefs and becoming more extreme in their viewpoints. I think. Um, the polarization of society is not new. We can look back in American history, the 60s, you know, the pre-Civil War era. There have been lots of times where people have said it's more divided than it's ever been. But I think what's dangerous is how people have really moved in the sense that we have red states and blue states, that all the liberals live on the two coasts and all the conservatives live in the interior. And in any presidential election now, there's only six or seven contested states. It wasn't this way before, that most of the states were really up for grabs. And I grew up in a town where there were Republicans and Democrats sharing the same street and taking turns on the town council. Um, now in New Jersey, it's it's all blue. Yep. And, and every state, you know, with only a half dozen or so exceptions, that's, and I think that this is dangerous to us as a country. You need to talk to people of different points of view. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. Definitely talking to the Chinese is, is one way of telling them where you stand, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wish that I could go to China and, and exchange ideas, learn from them, and so forth. But I think in the end, there are important values here that, you know, as an academic and as a university, you can't um, sell out to tyranny and you can't let them write the script for you mm -hmm. and, and pretend that it's objective when it's really not. That academic freedom, you know, is an idea that's been around for thousands of years. It's one of the foundations of a free society and of progress. You know, you think of all the political prisoners over the years from Galileo, who was put in jail for saying that planets went around the earth, you know, and things like this. Um, you really, in the end, have an ancient tradition that I think professors have a special responsibility to defend. Professor Yermak, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, I think that was a great note to end on. Um, it was a real treat. Thank you very much. Thank you so, so much. much.